Hey, Fast Talk listeners, this is Chris Case, inviting you to listen to the newest podcast in our growing network, Cycling in Alignment with Colby Pierce. Today, Colby sits down with Scratch Labs founder Alan Lim to discuss their long-term coach-athlete relationship, when the science should be called BS, and the all-important topic of food, and not just as an energy source for athletes, but its role as social fuel to bring people together. Here's Colby Pierce and Alan Lim. Welcome. To cycling in alignment. Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Greetings, Diginots. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cycling in Alignment. Today's guest is Dr. Alan Lim, a sports physiologist from Boulder, Colorado, the founder of Scratch Labs, and the author of no less than three books. During our conversation, we cover a wide variety of topics, including Alan's favorite color, his life's dream, goal, or objective, and the strengths and limitations of science. Now, activate your auditory meatus and prepare for blast off. This is Cycling in Alignment. Dr. Alan Lim, thank you so much for joining me on the Cycling in Alignment podcast. Thank you, Colby Pierce, the influencer of my life. <laughs> I think you got that backwards, buddy. Um, so... I wrote down some thoughts. We'll we'll try to stay nearish that target. Absolutely. Um, but as I pre-disclosed in my notes to you, if we wander off the path, and as long as it's good conversation, then I think we're okay yeah, with it, right? Focus, Colby. Focus, 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 focus. Okay, cool. So, some context for those of you, in case you don't know who Dr. Alan Lim is, um, I think a lot of people do, especially listeners of this podcast. But he graduated from CU Boulder. Feel free to correct me on any of these details or modify add add it as necessary. At it. That's a new word. Uh, his doctorate in sports phys. Phys from CU Boulder. I think the way the university likes to say it is that I graduated uh, from the Applied Exercise Science Laboratory yes. under the direction of Dr. William Burns in the Department of Integrative Physiology from the University of Colorado at Boulder with a doctorate in philosophy. That sounds so much better than how I said it. I don't I'm know. I'm glad you. Glad I don't know what that, that means, though. I, <laughs> well, we'll get to that. Um, you founded Scratch Labs. This is not in chronological order. You also worked on sports science teams for the TIA Cref team, which I rode for and kind of DS for and also kind of started. And yes. Garmin Sharp, which I also rode for and directed for and kind of started. And Radio Shack, which I had nothing to do with. Um, but you worked for all those teams. I'm sure you learned an immense amount yeah. about working at the world level. And, and I did listen to your Mile High TED Talk last night and you you spoke a bit about something, a concept I'd like to maybe unpack about your idea that when you you were struggling a bit with the workload and the travel of working at the world tour level, which is immense. And then on the other side, you felt that you wanted to leave that world, but you struggled to leave that world because of there's a certain status and a certain notoriety and also right. an addiction to just being around world level athletes, Yeah, whether you're being one or working with them it's 
it's an addiction to identity, mm-hmm. right? And the image that you create for yourself. And I think that in that, there can be a lot of loneliness. There's a psychologist named Mustakas, and he is um, well known for bringing in a, a idea around humanism to psychology, right? The belief mm-hmm. that not in a god, but in other human beings. And he wrote this really seminal textbook called Loneliness. I mean, mm-hmm. a textbook titled Loneliness. Mm-hmm. And he opens up with a really simple definition of loneliness. And that definition is loneliness is a fundamental breach between um, who one is and who one pretends to be. Mm. Right. And at the world tour level, I think there is certainly uh, uh, an amount of fake it till you make it and a certain amount of, you know, living up to that particular identity, even though you might have internal conflict about the lifestyle and about what you really want to be doing. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the time I really want to just be taking a nap. So <laughs> maybe I'm fundamentally breached all the time. <laughs> taking a nap or riding your bike. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. And having food. So napping, right. eating, uh, riding. Yeah. That's it. And and for some reason that brought me to the world tour. Which there's very little of any of those things. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and the, well, when you do the eating, it's usually kind of shit food. Yeah. Yeah. Frequently. Yeah. Either that or really, really rich French food. Yeah. It's like two opposite extremes. Yeah. Lots of carrots. Man. Lots, lots of, of carrots. carrots. Yeah. And steak that's just been hammered to death. Yeah. 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 But yeah, yeah. thanks for taking a look at that and, and bringing that point up. I think it's pretty salient, you know, and it's a salient struggle that we all face when we're trying to achieve and we're fed a lot of different narratives about what uh, mm. that success is supposed to look like. I think that's particularly applicable as well to athletes who have left the sport or thinking about leaving the sport because man, when you're a professional athlete or even just a dedicated amateur athlete for many years, changing that identity and no longer being, you know, a bike racer, that's That's a big step. I've gone through various phases of that myself and seen some of my, my colleagues and peers go through that. It's quite challenging. Yeah. And I think it is a very human thing and there are so many different levels of identity, whether it be religion, whether it be geography, whether it be family name, whether it be what you do for work and every culture has maybe a different prioritization, you know, in the U.S., that's definitely around the workplace and what you do for a living. You know, in Asian culture, it's definitely around your family name and the reputation that that brings, Mm. you know, and uh, a a lot of, you know, in my travels, I saw a lot of that being distinguished by religion, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, do you call yourself X, Y, or Z, right? And ultimately, it kind of comes down to, to, to trust and whether or not someone sees you as valid which is so weird right because who's to say isn't it and for me this boils down to a concept of a universal concept which is tribalistic thinking yeah right it's are you a bike racer are you a broncos fan that's right are you an american are you a coloradan do you have coloradan pride and to me i i really feel like this is an unpopular opinion i'm in the minority in this respect but i never felt a strong allegiance to any tribe of any kind even as a cyclist, to me, honestly, when I'm in a cafe dressed in normal clothing and five bike riders come in, they're annoying as fuck, to be honest. <laughs> Clacking around in their shoes with their tight pants on and stuff. And then and then so we all cyclists do this. I'm gonna throw us all under the bus right now. I take license to do this. I've called myself the world's biggest bike dork on this podcast. So I just have to give that disclaimer. Like when I bash cycling, it's out of love, but also brutal honesty. Because loving relationship is about support and challenge. While cycling, here's your challenge. 
like we do this thing where we talk really loud when we ride next to each other because you're talking over the wind. And then when you get to the cafe, you're talking Whoa. in the same volume. Have you noticed this? It's Whoa. So, it drives me nuts. And I just it, thought that was uh, an American thing. I, probably, probably there's a multiplier there, right? <laughs> yeah, because you do notice this amongst... Like, especially mm. if you're in Europe and you're working with a, a team that has many different cultures on it, you start to notice these cultural nuances. Yes. And Americans, you know, I know it's a stereotype. They're generally louder. Painting in a broad brush. I mean, yeah. stereotypes exist for a reason. Right? Yeah. So but I see the love there, Colby. I see the love and the disdain. <laughs> I see the attraction, right? It's yes. like a kind of uh, weird type of cycling phobia thing. A phobia? How do you mean? Kind of like, you know, you you love it, but you hate it. You're scared of it. You scare, you're scared of what you love. A little bit. I don't know if I'm scared of it, but I've definitely hated it at times, for sure. I mean, just like any long, long, enduring relationship, there are moments where you just want to strangle right. that cycling. That's right. And there are other points where you just want to crawl in bed and snuggle with it, I and, suppose. And back to identity. That's also kind of where I think that there's, there's a lot of self-loathing that happens, right? We beat ourselves up all the time. Oh. Don't we? We're our own best critics. So yeah, I mean, that goes back to tribalistic thinking, right? Like it doesn't matter where where we apply this concept. It's applied over and over again in human minds where we draw artificial boundaries around things or people and we associate them as what I call Disney paradigm. Yeah. Good or bad, right? Yeah. So there's a bad characters in all Disney's movies and then there are good characters and then there's the one goofy character, the, the whatever, the so-and-so, the crab or whatever, who's just goofy and does... Yeah odd things so that makes everybody laugh tells fart jokes or whatever so we have the good characters and the bad characters and when we grow up and we walk through the world i would argue with less consciousness or less critical thought we apply that same paradigm to many things in our lives like oh i got hit by a car today that was bad yeah but yeah you know did nine months of therapy really actually make you stronger in a lot of ways well, then three years later, you might be a far stronger, better educated, better, you know, more equipped athlete, better to deal with stress because of that entire experience of getting hit by a car. So it's when you zoom out enough, you can see the boundaries between these tribes start to blur. And I don't remember even what our original line of thought was as far as tribalistic thinking, but it's such a universal Identity. concept, right? Identity. I well, don't like country music. I, I, do, I do think this, you know, if you go back to this idea of tribalism and you go back to sports and you talk about having a favorite sports team and you were to ask somebody who their favorite sports team was and they, you know, were able to give you an answer if they were a fan, then you ask them a second question. At what age did you develop this affection? At right, what right. age did you imprint on this team? And I guarantee you that almost everybody who has a favorite team imprinted on that team before they were 10 years old. My dad liked the Buccaneers. Right. Or whatever. And you don't tend to change from that, right? Yeah. You have some sort of association at a very early age yeah. and you hold on to that. And I think our brains are very weird in that respect. We're kind of maybe neurologically conditioned to this, which also to your point mm. comes back to the Oxford sociologist Dunbar, right? Who talks about, has this concept called Dunbar's number. Um, the concept is that our brain can only hold so many relationships, maybe about a hundred in total, and that there's a concentric level of intimacy uh, such that at the very, very core, at the most intimate level, you can only maybe really be close to about four or five people, which is the family unit. Right. And from there, these concentric circles expand out. And it's a bizarre concept in a world where we are so interconnected, right? Where you might have thousands of, you know, followers 
and yet right. maybe only really care about a handful of them. Yes, it's yeah, um, it's that same concept of well, perhaps the Dunbar concept is the same idea as this this statement that you are kind of the product of the four or five people you spend the most time with. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You you have such strong overlap and such place such importance on those relationships that they really influence your way of thinking and looking at the world. Yeah. So, and then you're right, then it, those concepts or circles expand out from there to the point probably where you see other people through that lens to a degree, right? That's right. And and those people change depending upon what stage in life you are. Mm. And that clouds, again, your identity and your self-concept and who you think you are. And so, you know, when I was on the world tour and those were the people I was spending all my time, yep. that narrative gets reinforced that this is the most important thing. And all of a sudden, it becomes harder and harder and harder to ask yourself if there's something better or different or that might be actually, you know, fundamentally better than what you're doing more, right now. More enriching for you as a person or more inspiring. Yep. That's right. To bring out your higher mission or That's higher right. truth. Yeah. Yep, yep. I think, you know, to expand on that point for just one second, I think this is one of the ways in which, I mean, if you look at Matt Kahn's work, he talks about how kind of everything is perfect. It's sort of Arnold Patton's universal principles. We are, we all are exactly as we should be and everything is perfect as it is. That's very existential. I'll tell you why. Because from an existential standpoint, everyone is doing the best they can. Otherwise, right. they would be doing better. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. Right? So... We're all doing the best we can. We're, we're working with what we've got, so to speak, and we're here to learn our lessons is kind of the way to think about it. Yeah. And to bring a personal example to that, my parents died when I was very young. So I feel like I probably had less of that, at least parental imprinting yeah. upon me, which led me probably to a perspective where I was freer to think perhaps a little more critically about the world than some other people. Yeah. It also led me to about a 20 year phase where I was on a DIY mission. I was listening to no man's advice about fucking anything because I thought I was the shit. So there were a lot of people who perhaps offered me valid mentorship or good advice. And I was like, who are you? I'm 15 and my parents have been dead for years. I know everything. Yeah, wow. <sighs> right? So, but dare I say, it's given me a little bit more freedom perhaps than some people who were more ingrained or have more entrenched belief systems that were beaten into them by their parents. Yeah. I don't mean physically, perhaps in some cases, unfortunately. So, so how did that change when you became a parent? All children are tasked with the unfinished business of their parents. So... What I see frequently in my daughter is some of her struggles and man, it just brings me right back to her age or really she's a far superior human to me. So she's going through all this about it five years ahead of where I was, which is cool to see. Yeah. Uh, so, but it's still the same lessons. And sometimes I see her repeating that lesson, you know, cause she hasn't quite passed it yet, oh. which is part of parenthood. I mean, yeah. on, on, at times it's painful, but at other times it's like, you know, this is her path. And all I can do is when she comes to me and asks me, what do I do? I can give her the best possible advice. But if there's one single lesson that I've taken away as a coach or really as a human, it's that unsolicited advice. Doesn't matter if it's a guy thing or a gal thing or what. Unsolicited advice rarely goes over well. It's not, there are not very many people in the world who, who will take a piece of unsolicited advice about how to improve their lives and actually listen to it. Most of the time we are defensive when someone offers us that. Yeah, yeah. And that's also just human nature, I think. Yeah, I think that's, well, as a coach, I have found that uh, being Socratic 
Mm. Tended to work a lot better than telling people what to do. Yes. Right? Asking right. them questions, having a conversation. Performing, I get to use one of my favorite words, analinkus. <laughs> analinkus? Analinkus. What's analinkus? Analinkus is using the Socratic method to demonstrate a point to someone, but you do it by asking them questions. Yeah. Like, why are you such a D-bag? <laughs> <laughs> Well, you have to reverse engineer it. You have to be like, well, okay, let's examine why you flipped off <laughs> that driver when he honked at you after you ran a stop sign. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then you you break it down piece by piece until they're forced to look at the fact that, oh, I guess I'm a D-bag. <laughs> yeah. We've all been there. Hmm. I was there when I was 17. Now I stop at stop signs. I mean, come on, people. What the fuck? All right. Wait, we didn't make it through the intro yet. <laughs> Alan, you coached me the year I went to the Olympics. Yes. That was fucking cool. That was a lot of fun. That was. was a lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah. No, thank you. I mean, you were, I wasn't really familiar with track cycling. You were the guy who was kind of guiding it. And it was great just to be someone there that you could bounce questions and ideate with. Mm. Right. And that was, I think, that's the best part of, I think, the coaching relationship. It's when you write the play, you write the script, and I can come in and help edit. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, mm. I don't. Yeah. And maybe not all athletes are capable of that, but they should be. But from my perspective, what I remember is you. I remember when we first started the whole team pursuit thing and you started working with me on the track a bit. And then you, your head sort of exploded a little bit. because You were like, what the hell's going on here? And you made this massive spreadsheet with like 22 columns and it broke down CDA and the difference between the speed and the straights and the corners yeah. and all yeah. the physics of what the hell was happening on each lap. Yeah, to consider and, even like, well, what's the temperature difference between yeah. when the crowd comes in in the evenings yes. versus what is it like, you know. In a morning, in, morning session in a morning when session. there's 12 people there or whatever. That's and right. And all that influences time. That's right. And lap speeds and it was like. And that seems like standard practice now, but. It, dude, you it, were, it, it this was 2004. Yeah. You were way ahead of the curve, so. Yeah. High five. Ah, oh, thank you. Yeah. Seemed like the logical thing to do. Right? You know. See what I mean? Seemed like a good idea at the time, only in this case it actually was. Usually yeah. when you use that expression, it's like, it seemed like a good idea at the time to launch that potato gun at that police car. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was really nice to kind of almost bring in... Um, you know, a, a kind of uncarved block perspective to the world of track cycling to learn a ton about it. Mm -hmm. And I think as a scientist, it was so well controlled that you really did know if, you know, you were on or off, right? And you were one of the very first athletes that I ever knew to really adopt uh, power, you know, wholeheartedly. Mm -hmm. And so you already had a ton of experience coming into the 2004 games in terms of quantifying, you know, your world and being both data driven, but also, I think, very driven in terms of how you felt you were, you were really, really in tune, a lot more in tune than mm. a lot of other guys. So for being such a young, you know, dickhead, you were really pretty sensitive, dude. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> Contradiction abounds. Fair enough. I, yeah, I mean, I feel like for me, developing an intuition as an athlete was so necessary and potent. And I would argue that, you know, really, well, I've got a further a question that's further down the list for you about metrics and how they relate to athletics. And that gets to this point, which yeah. is what are we trying to accomplish when we measure metrics, you know, whether yeah. those metrics are power or TSS or heart rate during a particular workout, heart rate response, or even internal temperature with a butt thermometer, whatever, whatever, uh, HRV is one of the, you know, more popular ones. I mean, Dr. Lim, in your opinion, what, 
what what's the point of all this? Why are we trying to measure these metrics? Why do we I, count? I, I, I think the point is is that we either want reassurance, all right, some confirmation that what we feel or what we think is right or on the right track. And maybe this is not to say that you were a dickhead. I think that you were ultra sensitive as a athlete and you spent so much time thinking about things that when people gave you advice that it would almost kind of great because they didn't necessarily know how much time you actually spent thinking about that topic, <laughs> right? And so, you know, you spend a ton of time, for example, thinking about a situation that you're in and then some, you know, person comes up and points it out to you and you're just like, you anal, like, <laughs> no shit Sherlock, right? Will you stop talking to me because I've already thought about this for five days? Yeah, and, and we're trying to kind of uncover something that uh, might give us some 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 insight. I also think that, you know, we're not very very good at judging ourselves, and uh, we are filled with so much bias, and that what the data does is it helps us to maybe uncover that. Sometimes that mm -hmm. can set up new biases, mm -hmm. and sometimes that can actually be really, really enlightening. But I do think that ultimately it is uh, the real positive side of human curiosity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And human curiosity can take. Um, you know, the form of either faith or the form of science. Mm. Um, it can take the form of, hey, this is my best guess and this is what I decide to believe in because it creates a construct and a structure mm. by which I live the world. But there, there's also evidence-based problem solving, right? right? And if we can mm. kind of come out of ourselves and use evidence to solve our problems, then that's the best of human curiosity, I, I believe, mm. right? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, great. So. I'd love to unpack that that polarity you just brought up, which is the sort of you can look at the world through the lens of science or you can look at the world through the lens of faith. And and I think people as a general concept, that's absolutely valid um, and a realistic model of the way a lot of people think about the problem intellectually, which means they're viewing that entire problem through the science mind, even the face based mind. Yeah. But also here's the problem I have with that is the limitations of the face faith based mind, which I've uh, recorded in another podcast my Morpheus quote from the movie when he talks to Commander Locke and Locke's like, damn it, Morpheus, not everyone believes what you believe. And his response is, my beliefs do not require you them to. So <laughs> <laughs> that was my Morpheus voice again. It'll get better because you're going to hear that one again probably. So what I'm getting at is that the science mind, I, I hear a lot of people, I've studied some people recently who have said, okay, science is our god for a lot of people in yeah. 2020 and uh, you read i love reading online forum comments to a point on articles and things because inevitably you'll have one or two people who come and say well show me the double blind study yeah i don't believe it unless yeah. and they they don't care it's like they draw the line at anything that's got a university supported double blind placebo controlled you know study with four white papers and a meta-analysis that agrees with it or whatever you know, insert your pile of data here, whatever that pile is. And anything past that, they just refuse to acknowledge as possible truth, which first of all, let's just spell it out there, people. This is complete bullshit because there's a lot of stuff that is true that science doesn't know yet or hasn't proven in a double blind study yet. That's right, that's right. But then there's also stuff that will never be proved by science that is also true. Like, Al, do you love your mom? Oh, uh, 
Well, that, that's where you get into the idea of falsifiability in science, right? Right. And that falsifiability is at the, the very core of the scientific method, and it's this idea that you can either prove something true or not true, right. that you can develop a hypothesis. But there are a lot of things in life that we can't develop a hypothesis for, such as the existence of a god or the presence of love. Correct. Right? And so if something is not falsifiable, it doesn't fall into the realm of science. And so there are already some things that just categorically can't be scientifically discerned, right? Right, right. Um, and that's just freaking life. That's the, <laughs> the innate polarity or the innate contradiction mm. that we all uh, live with. And in fact, you know, one of my favorite quotes is by F. Scott Fitzgerald when he says, the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in one's mind and still retain the ability to function. Oh, that's a great quote. We still need to do something. Yes. Uh, yeah. Having an answer or no answer. Right. I would rather have a good answer and have mm -hmm. a good direction, mm -hmm. uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you, in lieu of an answer, just sit on your ass. Right. So, oh, that's a great way. To, that's a great perspective. Yeah. 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 But, you know, science and religion have always been intertwined. Max Planck, who is kind of known as the father of quantum physics, mm. has this great, another great quote. And his quote is, above the gates to the halls of science, read the words, you must have faith. Mm -hmm. Right? You are taking a best guess with a hypothesis. You are imagining a possibility. The key is, can you develop a test to prove this true or not true? And in the realm of quantum physics... Holy cow. Right. 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 Like developing yeah. a test for some of this stuff is just way, way out there. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. This is Schrodinger's cat land. And that's right. Yeah. Because you can't even see what you're trying what to measure. You, yes. But as Schrodinger's cat demonstrates, the presence of an observer can influence the experiment. That's right. You know, which is just blows people's minds all the time, too. So that's right. my concern is that the science mind doesn't recognize these intangibles that are unquantifiable or unverifiable by science. My concern is that there are people who walk through the world and at least, okay, to sidestep briefly for one minute, this is how I imagine people's minds work based on the comments I've seen. Yeah. We all do this. We imagine how other people's minds work, which is part of our bias as we walk through the world. That's right. And, and These that, science types. That's right. I don't know. I, the reality is I have no idea what's going on through yeah. any individual person's head. But based on what I've seen, this is the concern I have is that people are walking through the world going, I don't believe in anything unless I see a paper behind that's it. That's right. Well, and yeah. if that's true, then please think critically about your reality. <laughs> Well, I think that even in science, um, there is kind of a, there's a similarity between science and a stereotype. A stereotype is maybe your own view of an average, right? Right. On average, Americans talk louder. Right. 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 And the issue with science, especially biological science, is that you end up averaging very scattered data. Mm -hmm. Right. Each individual or each individual point in a scatter plot is a reality right and yet they don't always fit to a straight line mm. and yet we run a correlation or we run averages and we do a line of best fit and we say this is what is normative this is what is happening on average and yet that average discounts the fact that there may not be a single data point on that line in reality actually, right so this is it's a there's got to be a survivalist component to this because we see one tiger, it eats one of our friends. Okay, any big striped animal from now on is probably bad. That's right. And deadly. Now, the next time you see a herd of zebras, you might run like hell, but that's not going to hurt you. That's right. <laughs> but 
And so, you know, in describing your own reality, I think that we are now in a golden age of data collection Yes. in the sense that you can determine what your norms are, mm-hmm. right? And your norms might be different from somebody else. And your norm was actually a norm of excellence, right. of elite achievement, mm-hmm. right? Why, why couldn't every other human being on this planet be at your standard, right? Um, and yet, you know, ultimately you were just living your own reality and you had a lot of data to determine what was normative for you, what was a good day or a bad day. Um, ultimately, you know, when I think mm. about training and exercise physiology, there's this component that of, of me that looks at every single person like a bag of Jiffy Pop. And I see, you know, overcooked hey, popcorn or undercooked popcorn. You got a lot of kernels. Right. You got a lot of kernels, son. Right, right. We're just going to pop we're all gonna those pop kernels. Them. But we don't want to leave it on the stove too long. <laughs> That's right. It'll get burnt. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and we're all maybe coming to the table with a different number of kernels, For a different sure. flavor of kernels, a bigger different... bag, smaller bag. That's how, right. However exactly. you want to play the analogy. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, organic, non organic. And once popped, there's so much that our environment can do to change the taste or the structure of that popcorn. Right, right. right? You put caramel on that. What kind of oil did you it? use? Do you butter yeah. it? Yeah. Are you savory? Are you sweet? Right. Right. So the, the, the complexity of that really expands and that, that ultimately mm. begs to, you know, nurture nature and everything else that comes with it. Yep. 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 Agreed. So, and that also the perfect example for that. Well, in coaching world, what you're saying, I think, is that each athlete is an individual, they're as unique as their fingerprint. So that's why formulaic coaching, it can make a large number of athletes potentially progress to a certain point, yeah. but different athletes will have different responses to the same program because of those different size bags of kernels or that's the different right. types of kernels. So we can give 50 people the same interval protocol for nine weeks and we'll get totally different results based on what their baseline fitness was, what how responsive they are to that type of workload, how well they were at recovering off the bike, all those other variables that go into it, right? And this also goes to retool, which I know you know Todd and I'm friends with Todd and I'm not bagging on retool at all, but I gotta point out like one of the big flaws of using retool system for bike fit, which quantifies, it quantifies joint angles in 3D basically and gives you, and then what, what we do is we compare inevitably as humans, we look at someone's joint angles and we compare them to an orthodox pile of average data. That's right. Now that's, that's right. fine. That can tell us certain things about an athlete, but the problem comes when you start to compare the athlete to that pile of data and you see someone that's an outlier. They're, oh, they're at the yeah. 98th percentile for leg extension, for knee extension, or the whatever, fourth percentile for ankle dorsiflexion. And then you start to make changes to their fit, not based on what you're seeing about that athlete as an individual, about their function, their flexibility, how the, how supple their muscle is, how they make power, what the demands of their event are, you just start moving them towards the average of a pile of data. And as you just said, no one's actually on the average line. That's and right. That's why no one likes a beige house, but people, all builders b- paint houses beige that's because right. maybe there's one person in the universe who, like, who actually wants a beige you're, house. You're pointing out a great irony here because I think that every athlete wants to be an outlier and yet we're mm. advi- we advise them by bringing them back to the average. Uh, so. Dang. May I just rant for just, just a few seconds? Go for it. Please do. I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of this. I used to be until I heard so many other people doing it. And even world-class athletes, I'm really fucking tired of this speech. I'm not that talented. My VO2 is not that high. I don't make that much power. But man, I'm just so driven and I work so hard. At, like... How many times have you heard that card? I'm sorry, guys. Yeah. It's getting really tired. Like, <laughs> you're a cyclist. 
You're already self-selected to yeah, be right. the type of idiot who will bash themselves into oblivion for that's hours right. on end. That's right. You're not special. You're yeah. not an individual snowflake in this respect. Yeah. We are all equally... What What's the word I'm looking for? <sighs> Stupidly oscillatory. <laughs> like, yeah. well, I'll just go out and pound pedals for hours. Like, if we weren't that type of people, we would have been basketball players. <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, because in high school, basketball players and football players got a lot more chicks than I did as a skinny bike twerp. Yeah. I ended up on, you know, wearing my little cleaty clicky clack shoes and my stupid stretchy pants because that's what I kind of was good at. And then I was like mildly pissed off about all the stuff that happened to me in my life and all the jocks who beat me up or whatever. And I went out and smashed a bunch of mountaintops until I eventually ground myself into some kind of condition where I could sort of do okay as a bike racer. Yeah. That's a very common story in cycling. And I'm really not trying to minimize anyone's work. I'm just saying like, if you made it to an elite level in cycling, like please stop bashing your talent level to inflate your ego and martyrize yourself into how hardworking you are. That's right. That's Everyone right. It's who's only a half, bike racer is hardworking. It's only it's it's only half the story, and you're overrepresenting maybe half the story. And yes, I think the 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 line that I always use to try to resolve that innate contradiction is this line, um, and the line is fields are born, winners are made. Right, that when you see a group of athletes lining up at the uh, Olympic marathon, for sure they're all already different. They were born to be in that field. They've already self-selected to That's be right. there on That's that right. start line. That's right. But yeah. the only way, once you were self-selected to be on that start line, that you have a chance of winning or getting on the podium is if you take advantage of that and you make yourself. And so there is kind of an equal parts truth here. Yes. To 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 both. Mm. You know, you're to, to, to both accounts, but people overrepresent one half of that story. Yeah. It's so anyway, rent over. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. You know, like I people have told me that I'm smart and, you know, maybe sometimes I discount that. But I also know that both my parents were college professors before I was even born. Mm. Right. So you had two really freaking smart people right. who decided to get funky. Yeah. Right. And, and the voila. chances are high that the right? kid's going to have yeah. some brains. And, right. And not only that, but like when I was younger and, you know, I had a math problem, even though my dad didn't speak great English, I could show him any math problem at any level from, yeah. you know, basic math all the way up to calculus. And he could just sit down, look at it and solve the problem. And as I watched him solve the problem, I could learn how to solve the problem. Right. And I right. I took for Math, granted that, universal that language. was something that was something that was actually very special. Like how did mm -hmm. he know how to solve those problems? Right. And show me how to solve those problems. Yeah. It's freaky, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, last point in the intro. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so funny. <laughs> this is great. Okay, this is great. <laughs> Uh, Dr. Lim, you've authored three books in uh, in partnership with Bijou Thomas. That's right. The Feed Zone Cookbook, Feed Zone Portables, and Feed Zone Table. That's right. You know, it's it's it comes from the experience that I had in pro cycling that really showed me that you can't reduce all of your sports nutrition, right? And you can't reduce sport, right? When and you know, one of the issues I think is that I had a very reductionist level of training, meaning that I was taught to try to bring things into parts and that goes down all the way to genetics and biochemistry, which are incredible sciences, right? That have transformed the world. 
But there's another side of science besides reductionism, which is called emergence. And emergence is this idea that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And consciousness is a really interesting aspect of emergence, right? You have all these neurons, you have all these neurotransmitters, you have gray matter, white matter, you have these different sectors of the brain. And as much as we know about these parts, none of them explain why we are self-aware, we have consciousness, right? Right. And I think the, the same is really true with nutrition and with athletic performance. And there were so many recipes that we were bringing to the table that we were using to feed our athletes when I was on the world tour. It made sense to try to bring that to a very kind of pragmatic, you mm-hmm. know, endpoint with mm-hmm. the cookbooks, right? Instead of talking about nutrition, let me just show you a bunch of recipes mm. that we know are delicious, beautiful, that bring people to the table together. Mm. And yeah, we'll quantify the nutritional content of this food, right. but we'll also show you a great picture, hopefully get you to salivate and right. inspired to actually uh, start your sports nutrition and you know, kind of adventure in the kitchen mm-hmm. where it's supposed to begin, not by opening up a package. Right, right. Yeah, I, I preach that to my athletes over and over again. Um, you know, if you can't pick it, peel it, skin it, or catch it, yeah, you shouldn't eat it, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you can catch a Twinkie, but I'm talking about catching a fish. If That's you can't right. identify it in a forest or on a farm, ideally, it doesn't go in your mouth. And yeah. that's um, so that's a concept that unfortunately a lot of people have to get their heads wrapped around because it's alien to them. Well, I think it's more alien to Americans as a whole because we have a very technocentric culture. Mm. We have a tech uh, a culture that is built around innovation, which is really really amazing, and that's ultimately driven by science, and mm. that's ultimately you know reinforced by technology. Uh, when you look at other cultures, though, there might be a more traditional or what's called ethnocentric culture, a yeah. culture that is uh, passed down. And you see this difference in the way people eat. You can have an ethnocentric style of eating mm-hmm. or you can have a technocentric style of eating. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there is probably some balance between the two, right? Like you took me to dim sum one time. Yeah. Right? That's, That's right. an example of That's right. Of, of style of food and eating that That's has been right. passed down for I don't know how many thousands of years. That's right. right. And, and, you know, uh, you know, my, my bias is to always use white rice. Mm. And when people say, Hey, look, what's the benefit of you always using white rice? I, the only real thing I can say is that, well, this is the way my mom taught me how to make rice, Mm -hmm. right? This was the cultural norm in my family growing up. And so now I have an imprint or a natural bias towards this as being more delicious or tastier or more more comforting to me. So my daughter spent her fall in Japan and she actually read somewhere recently, I don't know where, that someone figured out not too long ago that the biome of Asian people extracts more protein from rice than Americans. Yes. White rice. There you go. But I may may not get as much out of it as you would. That's right. Right? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, the biome is something that's, there's another little universe of science that we're but, but here's the thing right is, is is do i ha- now have an american biome because you've lived in the u.s for i've been in boulder colorado since 1994 there you go holy cow what if i'm chinese but i've got a white biome i don't know i don't know you've lived in boulder a long time you've also dang you probably also have some pretty good diversity you spent how many years traveling with world tour teams 
Yeah, almost a decade yeah. or so, and then on and off throughout uh, my time at Scratch. You know, right, so right. I've been fortunate enough to you know have this business now that still allows me the opportunity when I'm really inspired or you know, especially by it's it's all about the person, right? Um, to get out there and get back in the field, um, especially now more on my own terms than on a, you know, this is what you have to do. And yeah. I, I think that, you know, we've we've all had an unconditional relationship with sport. And maybe the problem with becoming a quote-unquote professional mm. is that it does become conditional. Yeah. 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 It does. It's... So, yeah, anyways. Yeah. Back to my biome. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is there a way that, you know, another man can look into another man's biome, Colby? Well, you know, there are fecal transplants. I mean, there's a way you can get someone else's biome. I just want, I just want, I just want someone to tell me it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Yes. I mean, there's lots of biome testing. And on that subject, I've listened to a lot of podcasts and done a little bit of reading about this. And it seems like it's an emerging technology where people are studying biomes and analyzing them. And then every few months, there's a new company that comes out with the next best method. And I think there's layers and layers to this. And people are realizing how many, what the incredible variety of critters is that lives in our structure. I mean, we're That's more right. bacteria than we are human, actually. That's right. When you go unit per unit. So pretty pretty interesting that's right and, and this is again the balance between advancing technology advancing science and also at times creating you know maybe erroneous trends or confusion because we don't yet have the whole picture right, right. this right. is all literally tip of the iceberg it is exactly that and that's and same thing with telomere testing right yeah and even dna testing has gone through a few rounds already and they're getting more advanced with it but i've had i heard several people have set in equivalent they'll take dna from the same human and send it to three or four different companies and they'll also send multiple samples to the same company under different names and they'll get different results that's and right it's like ooh, wait uh, a minute here what's going on how many thousands of dollars did that flush there's there's always error in process and i of think course. that you yeah. know any any measurement requires a process and every step in that process introduces another possibility for mm. variability Right. But so we have this weird paradox, right, where we have access to all this information on the interweb and we can go look at Wikipedia and we can study websites and experts and have access to all this knowledge. But at the same time, at the tip of that leading scientific edge, at least ostensibly from a consumer standpoint, anyone can start a company, a biome company or some other company that measures some other metric of the human body. And they can say, we give you all this information on the length of your telomeres. But the reality is the technology they're using is so far removed from what the customer could possibly understand about the process. Yeah. The customer really is at the mercy of that company in terms of what information they have. That's a tricky paradigm, oh, right? Look, so man, I don't even know how a Xerox machine still works. Like <laughs> Right? <laughs> you know, I mean it's been a long time since I've gone to Kinko's and made a photocopy. <laughs> But still, like, what how the does fuck? that thing work? Yeah, how does it go? Yeah, exactly. How many little critters are in there? Wait exactly. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> and yet, I trust when I see the end product that you know there's a perfect copy. And I think that that's ultimately the only thing we can trust is what is the end product, and is there some sort of pragmatic or practical outcome right. that makes me feel like I'm actually. Ha improving my life, mm. right? Um, either going faster or sleeping better or, yes. you know, being able to relate with others in a more mm -hmm. meaningful way. But you know? yeah, it's challenging though, whether you're talking about quantifying HRV or even comparing the 
accuracy of power meters. That's right. And everybody's doing their own. You know, I took four power meters on my bike at once. That's right. And, and there's always confirmation bias because if mm -hmm. you do get the right outcome, yep. right? Even if you might have used the wrong process, yes. it confirms that that process was the right I process. I did spend the right money on this pair of power That's pedals right. or whatever. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Al, what's your favorite color? You know, my favorite colors are the colors of nature. Ooh. The what blue a good sky. Answer. Yes. The green grass. Mm -hmm. The purple mountains. Mm -hmm. Majesty. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm really attracted to, to, to that. But I will say this. In terms of favorite color, I was riding on the dirt roads outside of Boulder here. Mm. And I saw this farmhouse that was painted blue on its base and white on the top. Mm -hmm. And this blue contrasting with the green and all the other natural colors of the world. Mm. I was like, holy cow. I think my favorite color is that blue because it does step in and in, in start contrast to the natural world. I also like blue because there are so many idioms associated with blue. For example, you know, you might feel blue right now, but mm -hmm. don't worry, Colby. Blue skies are ahead. <laughs> you um, might want to make a blueprint so that things mm -hmm. don't come out of the blue. Right. Right. So many idioms. So many freaking contradictory mm. idioms with the word blue. Mm. Right. Blue-eyed boy. Uh-huh. Right. Brown-eyed girl. The men in blue. The men in the men in black. Wait. Yeah. yeah. True blue. <laughs> so blue. Final answer. Blue. Good. Good answer. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> what is your dream goal or objective? Oh. To shift gears a bit. I don't know which question is more important. Air quotes. Yeah. Um, I do think goals are important. I do think dreams are important. I do find myself constantly living in a world of fantasy. I probably spend half of my life projecting fantasies that aren't actually real. And I find it delightful. I find it so much fun. I find it entertaining. I find it to be this incredible balm where a lot of people might watch television or daydream or, or, or meditate. I daydream. Right, I just like, You're like to, Walter Mitty. I like to fantasize, um, you know, and I daydream about all sorts of different things. The other day, I was daydreaming about the perfect bathtub, right? <laughs> just like what was your that? perfect bathtub look like? I don't know. It's somewhere between kind of a a, a clawed type of big ass tub or a soaking tub mm -hmm. and yet i want to be able to take a shower in it so do i have to have a separate shower and then the tub right. can the two coexist with one another and then you go down these crazy tangents mm -hmm. but you know I, I will ultimately answer your question colby and i'll answer your question in this way and this was a question that was asked to me a long time ago when someone asked me maybe off of a coffee mug what would you do if you knew you could not fail mm. my answer was fall in love Huh. Because I think that it's the one thing that I don't want to fuck up, right? And it's uh -huh. the one thing as human beings we all want. And there are so many different versions of love. And I think it's love that brings us to sport. It's love that brings us to every relationship that we're in. Mm -hmm. It's love that is ultimately so unquantifiable. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, now that I'm saying the word love a lot, it does sound cliche, but it is kind mm -hmm. of ultimately the the one thing that makes being human so special and so unique mm -hmm. and i think that we do end up you know trying to create these false identities and seek a certain level of success in the world because we want that adoration we want that love we want that respect 
Mm. Well, yeah. adoration, Shit. love, and respect in that in that context is conditional, right? But yeah, I also so this is one of the curiosities about the English language. We have one word for love, but that that word in the English language means so many different things. I mean, I can say I love to ride my bike. I love my wife. Yeah, I love my cat. All different ways. I love my sister. All different meanings, right? I love when I take that first sip of coffee in the morning. All different different connotations to that word, right? Experiential, romantic, yeah. um, family, right? I yeah. love my best friend, et cetera, et cetera. So you can think of all these examples and in, in many other languages, there are different actual words for those uses. So love in English is kind of a an overused or under expanded word perhaps. Yeah. But and, and it, it motivates us to do so many weird things, right? Like, you know, like, oh, I, 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 I need to have money because I love my kid and I want to provide you know hockey lessons exactly and yeah. ah it's just yeah it's vexing and it's complex but i think it's the root at of a lot of our insanity and sanity agreed agreed yeah yeah loving relationship is about support and challenge yeah. so yeah uh love and a a fucking wicked tub <laughs> Life goals, man. <laughs> those are those. Yeah, that's that's Life how goals. that's how it shakes down right All now. All right, I that's like how it. it. Shakes down right now. Good answer. Good you know, answer. I, I I I did fantasize before this pandemic happened of having a pause button that I could stop because I felt like I was maybe on a treadmill I couldn't get off of, mm -hmm. and I wanted to be able to freeze mm. time, right? And you made this happen. You manifested I know. it. So like, be careful what you wish for. Right. I just said that yesterday. Oh. I, you know, we may have manifested this together because I felt for about a decade, I felt like, man, I would like to not be working at 9 p.m. Yeah. You know, yeah. sprinting to bed to get the to get my inbox down to a manageable level. Yeah. Uh, I just I'm always going. And some of that, I think, is my my personality, my in Chinese medicine, I'd be a wood type, right? Like always Ooh. accomplishing, going, doing more and more kind of ta very task driven, very, yeah. very action oriented. And now is that like me. a hardwood or a morning wood or a... <laughs> uh, I'm 47. I mean, I guess a morning wood now and Just again. Just average wood? Probably more maple. Yeah. 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 Nice. So. Nice. <laughs> but... I, I threw I, you off with the wood there. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. Now I'm thinking about erections. Um, so I... What I was getting at is that I feel like I maybe helped you manifest this slowdown because also it wasn't just my experience. This isn't confirmation bias, but I see I did hear a lot of people also saying, "Man, I'm so busy all the time." And you felt the frenetic. I mean, you've been here since '94. Yeah. I've been here since 1972. Yeah, and this place is blowing up. The Front Range is crazy. It's like, crazy. I no longer alpine ski yeah. because. You can't go on a Friday or a Sunday without annihilating, getting literally stuck on I-70 in a traffic jam in the forest. That's right. You're in the forest. There's no oh, stoplight no. for like 50 miles. Oh, no. You're on a highway and you're just sitting there looking at the deers like, what is wrong with you people? Oh, we've gotten in each other's way. Right? And I don't, that's not an enjoyable activity to me in any form. Like there's no, unless I could ninja way around that, there's no, so there's things I do not do now. And what is very, an unfortunate realization for me is that I promised myself I would never live in California or specifically LA because I did not want my life choices to be dictated by patterns of traffic, which is yeah. what happens when you live there. That's right. And now I've realized that to a degree, this has happened here. Yeah, Some of my life everywhere. patterns, 
It's happening everywhere. And then the discussion becomes, I've been having this discussion with a lot of people recently. Do we move? Okay, well, where are we gonna move to? There are two problems with moving three that I can think of. One is it's a year of your life. Yeah. Pack up your house and sell yeah. your house and put it on the market and yeah. figure out how you're gonna buy another house or you're gonna do a contingent contract and yeah. blah, blah, blah. And then and then move to the other place and then spend at least six months getting all your shit unpacked and figuring yeah. out where they put that stupid inherited piece of furniture that you're not sure you can get rid of without you know offending your dead grandmother. Um, or buy a new one. That's right. <laughs> right. And how much IKEA do you actually want to own? Yeah. In my universe, none, but okay, you gotta own some here and there. So there's all that. That's a year flushed. But then what did you do? Let's say we move from Boulder to Bozeman. Bozeman is where Boulder was about 22 years ago, except with better food. So the clock ticks. But what do we do? Yeah. And then in five years, because it's not happening at the same rate, it's happening exponentially. In five years, Bozeman will be almost where Boulder is now. But not only that. So, okay, I've replaced one set of problems for the same set of problems, but I delayed them. But I cost myself a year and a shit ton of money in the process. That's right. Because real estate is one to one. That's right from Boulder to Bozeman, unless That's I'm gonna right. move to Mexico, which I'm not. So then I added to the problem because now I am the person who moved to Bozeman to increase to their workload. That's right. And now I get to not only add to the problem and experience the same problem again. So what did I do? Yeah. But here's my other issue with it. It's really easy to be this Zen meditative person who walks through the world and brings peace to others when you retreat to a cave or you live in a mountaintop. You want to do some real work? Live in fucking New York City. Yeah. See what I'm saying? Yeah. That's where the people need you. If you're going to be, to make an ostentatious statement for a moment, if you're going to be a light worker and hopefully lift other people's energies or bring something positive to them when you interact with them, you know, you're not going to interact with many people if you live in Ward, Colorado. That's right. I think also, you know, maybe the issue, and I thought about this issue a lot. You know, first there's the whole grass is greener thing, and that's probably a fallacy. Right. You end up, you know, moving and fucking someone else's grass up. <laughs> and then the dog barks there anyway. Yeah. And then there is this this idea around people versus place, right? And yeah, I've been here since '94, and I didn't think that I was going to be here. You know, however many this years long, that is, math right? exploding head. Yeah, exactly. But what has happened now every year that I I stay in Boulder, I accumulate what I call another friendship year, hmm. right? So it's how many friends do I have, and how many years have I have I known them? And there's no other place geographically in the world where I have as many friends for as many years. You multiply that out, and I would be insane to leave Boulder, right? It just I, I, I can't start over. That's what that tells me is that you have great relationships with these people because you hear stories about people and I'm not bagging anybody who does this, but they're like, I, I needed a change. Yeah. Flush. And they go yeah. and start again in a new community. And that can be a chance to redefine yourself, which goes back to our earlier conversation about when you're done being a prof professional athlete or you're done working at the world tour level. I mean, that would have been the time for you to move. He wanted to move because yeah. you could have gone to... I don't know, anywhere, Cape Town, and been like, now I'm Dr. Alan Lim, but I'm starting a new company. That's right. And That's right. That's so, right. And, you know, maybe that makes it easier to change your identity. 
right? It, and to be, I would argue, uh, it probably does someone else. But I think that you just have to kind of own up to maybe evolving and being different and letting the people who are in your life know who that new person is. Yep. And that's what maybe keeps it interesting and stimulating is that we are changing, we are, mm. you know, gaining new perspective. We can change our minds and we can have, you know, new and evolving opinions. Agreed. Right. Exposure to familiar places and people and things will bring us back to our default mode network. That's right. Right. That's right. It'll just reinforce that pattern, that entrenched. I mean, That's I've right. lived here my whole life, aside from the all the traveling I did as a bike rider, which was extensive, but still. That's Boulder, right. Boulder's home. It's familiar. And when I ride down ninth, it always looks like ninth. Yeah. Right. Right. And it is a pretty unique little little bubble as it is. So mm. I think we can make where we are better. And maybe if everyone did that, there wouldn't be that uh, envy or that desire to think that we can just flush our existing problems down the drain and mm. you know see where the sewer brings us. I think that's a, a bit of medicine that's come out of this experience. For context, uh, I don't know when people are going to listen to this, but this is May 21st-ish or something like that, 2020. Um, you know, So we're theoretically coming out of some sort of dark tunnel, but we'll see or then other people are waiting for some other wave but i mean from my perspective man riding i can ride highway 36 again that's right that's <laughs> like, right there's so there, all the drivers for the first seven or eight weeks now it's starting to get a little bit more crowded and a little more normal yeah. a little more business but i could ride anywhere the driver anyone driving was so polite every yeah. cyclist is waving to each other that's right everybody's wearing masks all the people on trails are waving and saying hi and and people are just grateful to be out. I'm seeing kids and families walking and doing hikes together. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this is beautiful. Now, contrast that with the people who are on full lockdown and can't leave and are probably all vitamin D deficient and nature deficient. And I already did an interview that's released with Nathan Haas. When, we, when I interviewed him, he was on day 37 of full quarantine. Whoa. And the first two weeks of that were in a hotel at the UAE tour. Whoa. He was one of the riders who got held back. I mean... And it ended up being a total accumulation of nearly, I think, nearly 70 days Whoa. by the time he was done, which is insane. Well, that makes me feel really claustrophobic. Right? I mean, we have... So for me, this has been powerful medicine to walk through the world with so much gratitude because every time I get to go for a bike ride, I'm like, holy shit, I get to ride my bike today. This is like worldwide. This is a thing that where a lot of people yeah. can't do this. Or are there are even some people who where it's sort of gray zone yeah like california yeah and but some and so people are conflicted about it because they don't want to be out when there are too many other people out so they're kind of having it yeah so there's this constant state of like should i be riding my bike am i going to yeah. be yelled at am i going to get someone sick am i going to come home with something i've done more bike riding in terms of hours kilojoules and miles in the last month than i have ever done since maybe 2002 awesome so in almost 20 years yes this is the most exercise i've ever this is like gotten lean and ripped al yeah and i'm not even that 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 lean right now <laughs> but i am probably eating more as well and i am right. sitting at my desk more mm. so there is kind of maybe a balance that's happening here yeah it's very yeah. very weird yeah uh, but still, I, I I like the fact that I can mm. can go a little harder for a little longer than I've ever been able to experience mm. in a long time. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Can we rewind on food for a minute? Sure. Since you just mentioned food. So, okay. Hearing different perspectives. This is a problem I think that's endemic in endurance sports is people view 
food as fuel. Yeah. And especially at the world tour level, man, there's at that level, it's really hard to get around that mindset. Yeah. One thing that drives me bonkers though is when people are overly formulaic or even really I'll say formulaic about food, like you need this many kilocals of carbohydrate per hour in yeah. these conditions. To me, that formula break, there are a hundred holes I can shoot in that immediately. That's right. That's right? right. Temperature, humidity, biome, just to name Everything. the three of the biggest ones That's alone. Right. That's right. So it's like, so to me, I just hate that stuff. It's really a pet peeve of mine. I mean, formulaic and same thing with consumption of liquid per hour. Yeah. Because my analogy is it's like landing a small airplane, right? Just enough speed, not too much altitude, not too little, or you're going to crash. Too much speed and you know too much speed and altitude, and you're never going to land. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, how do we strike the perfect balance? And what that comes down to is the athlete feeling the body and being in touch with their intuition and how many calories they need. That's right. That's from a fueling perspective alone. But that whole side of the discussion ignores the entire aspect that there's much more to food than fuel. That's right. Food has chi in it. Yeah, that's right. Food has energy, has living life force in it. That's, that's right. why when you eat a packaged food. It has far less, yeah. what's another word for chi? I mean, some people may not like that word or they may not understand it. So I'm looking for more synonyms. Yeah, well, I think I think the way that I tend to think of it is I think of food as either chemical fuel or I think of it as social fuel, mm. right? Because there is such a cultural importance to eating. And I think that whenever I see athletes get really technocentric and really into food as fuel paradigm, yep. um, and they get uh, really into the the the, the nitty gritty of quantifying it. Macros, well, quantifying macros. Yeah, what of I carbs. tend to see is that they tend to start eating in isolation, mm. right? And that the two are very ah uh, because least, they they don't want to get sucked into making the wrong choice if someone passes them too much olive oil. Well, to your point about tribalism, they just don't fit in anymore. Ah, uh, right. Right. I can't eat that. Yeah, I don't eat that unless everybody at the table is weighing their food with their individual scales. Right. Which <laughs> for those of you who don't know, that actually happens at the World Tour. Uh, yeah. With reasonable frequency. That's right? right. So unless you can create a whole entire tribe around that, uh, then you are all of a sudden isolated and your weirdo yeah. and that isolation and that um kind of you know lack of commensality the act of eating together right. i think is more ruinous uh to people's psyche than you know whether or not they're perfecting their nutrition mm. I, I can say from a you know physiological standpoint that the human body is extraordinarily adaptable we can adapt to almost any fuel mm -hmm. um you know, we can survive in almost any condition. We are extraordinarily flexible animals. Yes. And so to say that uh, there is a right diet is, is fairly difficult. Mm. Uh, but one thing is for certain, we go crazy when we're isolated. Mm -hmm. Right, we go crazy when we mm -hmm. are alone because we're biologically driven to be social creatures, um, and food is a massive component of that. And you know, you go to the world tour and you look at these kind of big dining halls, you know, and hotel rooms where they're setting up kind of a mass feed for athletes, um, or you know, at, at, at big restaurants that are catering for these guys, and you always know who is is going well. Uh, you always know who's going to go well the next day, not by what's on their plate, but by which table is laughing the most. Right. Right. Yeah. Or which which table is filled with the most, most stories. Yeah. 
right? Most um, joyous. Yeah, yeah. The tables that are sitting there in silence. Mm-hmm. Oh, you could just, you can cut the tension with a butter knife, right? Right, like, right, right. It's awful. Yeah. And so social fuel versus chemical fuel. Mm. I think we have a lot of flexibility with respect to our chemical fuel. We're probably more constrained with respect to our social fuel. Yeah. Interesting. That's a great, great way to break it down. Yeah. yeah. So sit at the table, mm-hmm. shut up, <laughs> eat what's on your plate, and tell us a good story. <laughs> right? And remember, you've got one mouth and two ears. That's right. So you should listen twice as much as That's you speak. Right. <laughs> yeah, good. Um, let's check in with our list here. How are we doing? Pretty good. You, we got to dreams, uh, meditation. Yeah. Oh, science is bullshit. Right. I'd love to. Yeah. I, so, Okay. Let's frame that one. Yeah. I think it was around 2005 you gave a talk to, I don't remember if it was actually to the TIA CREF team or if it was to the CU team possibly. Yeah, who knows? I remember the classroom, but I don't remember where it was. But anyway, that was sort of your theme of your lecture was science is bullshit. And we've touched a bit on this already, but I'd love for you to expand on that I think at that time, what I was really trying to express was this idea of individuality. Right, and this idea that uh, too much in biology we regress everything to the mean, and that you had to really respect your own data if you were to carve your own path as a successful outlier. Yes. Right. Um, so maybe it wasn't so much about bashing on science as it was about inspiring people to be and accept who they are, to be good with their uniqueness, mm-hmm. and to understand that their data point in the world was as meaningful and as important as the average mm. of all that data. Right. Right. Um, when we talked about this earlier, right, that is the confinement of science and really the confinement of sports science is that the population numbers are so small. Yes. You're dealing with studies with 10 or 15 people, typically college age, typically men, um, you know, typically not well controlled, typically done by graduate students who are just trying to get a degree and get the hell out. Right. Right. And right. so you have to kind of look at that and say, what's more important, the actual result or the methodology? And I think the methodology is probably more important. Mm -hmm. How you answer the question, how you collect the data, that's probably more interesting than the actual result because you can take that methodology and you can experiment on yourself and discover whether or not you you fall on one side of the line or on the other side of the line. Right. Right? And that's still evidence-based problem solving. So I want to mention two. I was going to mention Dr. Stacy Sims if you're cool with yeah. that, because uh, she. I, I agree. Like one of the big criticisms of university studies is that they are so frequently done on men. Yeah. And the amount of science that's been done on women in the world of exercise is appallingly low. That's right. Right. That's right. Um, disastrously low. And so when someone like Dr. Stacy Sims um, pioneers a course where she talks about how to coach women differently, how to fuel women differently, yeah. how women have different needs in as athletes. It's groundbreaking work. Um, yeah. It's almost sadly groundbreaking because it's like, how long have we had women athletes? That's right. That's right. <laughs> but here we are. That's right. Just figuring some of this stuff out. That's so. right. That being said, I do think that we are all human beings, and while there are really, really important gender differences that we need to respect. I, you know, kind of harken back, especially around food and diet, that we can all still sit at the same dinner table together. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, this doesn't have to um, necessarily create segregation. It doesn't have to be divisive. No, it doesn't have to be be divisive. Yes. And that 
The very interesting thing about gender differences as a whole is that the individual variability within a gender is often greater than the average difference between genders. Right. Right. And so you still have to respect kind of the individuality of who you are, because certainly almost every um, female cyclist that I know is stronger than I am. I women are amazingly strong, especially in endurance athletics. They just blow my mind. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and you yeah. know, one of the things that I've really kind of loved doing is after I left the pro tour, I started running these training camps out of Boulder, Colorado, and they were never gender exclusive. Right. And you had women and men training together on the bike, mm-hmm. um, on some of the hardest days that I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And, oh yeah, you know, there was, you know, you'd have an Evelyn Stevens who were just, right, right. you know, or Dee Dee, yeah, or Dee Dee, pedal yeah. stroke to pedal stroke, with yeah, the, with, yeah, with the with the guys. Yeah, I've done six hour rides with Dee Dee, and she smashes it. Yeah, yeah, incredible. Yeah. Uh, another resource I want to mention is at the Czech Institute. There's a course that was recently released. It's called Holistic Health and Performance for Women, and the author is Sarah Gustafsson. And um, she did a podcast with Paul Czech about this, and it was pretty illuminating. But her course is. I think on par with uh, some of Stacy's work, yeah. In terms of exploring women and their relationship to exercise and how things need to change a bit, yeah. Um, so if right. you're a coach and you're coaching a woman, either or both of these resources are really valuable to to study. Yeah, and I think that you know ultimately this is just a reflection of our own society and a reflection of uh, privilege and status, and you know that we have a very long history of studying primarily white males. Right. It's sad but true. Yeah. Same old story. Yeah. You know. What's the line? Yeah. It's uh, you, you, you didn't make good choices. You had good choices. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Although sometimes people have good choices still make very poor choices. <laughs> <laughs> That's the rub, right? <laughs> so we've covered a lot of this stuff, but moving forward. Okay. Al, tell us a little bit more about your coaching philosophies. We've unpacked the Socratic method a bit. Yeah. Including the use of the Elinkus. Yes. <laughs> I, I think my general coaching philosophy is um, coach thyself, maybe, if mm. I were to kind of summarize what it is. Um, I do see, uh, you know, coaching as being very, very difficult because you don't live um, inside of somebody. And so uh, the more I move on in this sort of biz, the less and less I get comfortable telling people what they are supposed to be doing. Uh. I can give them or share with them experience, but you know, that may or may not actually be specific to that person. I think that the thing that I've learned as a coach, the best that I can do is create environment, Mm -hmm. create a place where uh, an athlete can be nurtured and they can actually thrive. Uh, there's, you know, this this idea of the, you know, daily performance environment, mm-hmm. right? What does your life, what does your environment need to be set up so that, how does it need to be set up so that you can do your best every single day? Mm-hmm. And that's one thing that I know I can do for athletes. I can create a positive environment for them, right? You can, uh, and that that often requires a lot of a lot of grocery shopping, right? Okay. And a lot of basic care, and a lot of good cooking, and a lot of just time spent together, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of conversation, and so much happens from that. What 
I, I see happening out of that is this ability to really improvise um, and to be in a space where you can decide in real time what needs to get done. And right. maybe to encourage uh, a place where people can actually work harder than they would have without that environment. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's also where inviting the right people into that environment matters. Having, you know, uh, good quote unquote teammates or training partners right. uh, really matters. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. I think that I'm less, I've become less of an advice, advice giver and more of an environment creator. Environment builder. For, yeah. Enabler. Because you, know? you, you set up the right mm. circumstances for people and they will automatically thrive, especially if they mm. are driven. You know, and, and that's part of the reason why Boulder is a unique training place because Lee Hill is Lee Hill. It's steep as fuck in some places. Right. And there's only one way to get over those steep sections. Right. Which is to go deep. Yeah. Right? To go yeah. hard. Um, and the environment ends up, you know, creating creating that. And even in a race situation, it is the race course uh, as much as it is tactics that mm -hmm. determines how those races play out. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is why I struggle a little bit with all the course modeling that some people seem to be really into. I mean, I can see its applicability in time trials to a degree, but when you're trying to model a lot of road race yeah. stuff, it's just so complicated. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm just looking deep enough in the data. You don't know what you don't know. But to me, that was just an exercise in futility. It's more like, yeah. and in that respect, the parallel would be that I'm more like about coaching the athlete to be resilient enough to understand what to expect. But then every race is like a whiteboard. I mean, you, the best laid plans, right? Like That's you, right. you have the team meeting on the bus and you tell the riders, this is what's going to happen. We're going to have a crosswind from these kilometers to these kilometers and the shit's going to hit the fan and this team's going to go to the front here and these guys are going to attack because they have to. And then you go to the race and everything goes exactly the That's opposite. Right. The wind flips 180 degrees and now it's hailing and yeah. half the team crashes. And then, you know, this team doesn't do what you are guaranteed yeah. they had to do because it's their only tactical card to play and they decide to do something yeah. else. And then it's what Mike Tyson said. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> right. Right? Yeah. <laughs> All of a sudden, it's I like, mean, holy yeah. shit, I just got punched in the I face. I just got punched in the face. Now what? I, everything just went out the window. Yeah. I mean, that's cycling. Cycling is at least 50% made up on the fly. So so I think, I think with that in mind, one of my coaching philosophies is to teach a lot of skill set, teach a lot of structure. Yes. Uh, because it's my belief, for example, that the most, um, the best classically trained actors are the ones who are the best at improvisation. Right, right. Because they have this deep tool bag that they can draw mm -hmm. from. And, and so, an innate understanding of the environment when, when to apply the right tool. That's right. That's so right. So that's, I mean, we're, we're in agreement, I think, on this. You're saying that the best way to coach someone is to make the best environment to allow them to foster and grow into the best selves to express their highest potential as an athlete. And tactically during a race, it's really the same thing. You're creating the environment by giving them the tools necessary to handle anything that happens on the road, right? Yeah, that's You're, right. And for me, that's part of what I was driving out earlier with the, the discussion about metrics and what they teach us. Yeah. I think ultimately part of your answer was it tells the athletes something about themselves. To me, power, heart rate, any other metric you want to put in that pile, doesn't really matter what it is, on the bike, off the bike, anything that measures yeah. anything is really there to do one thing only, which is to teach the athlete more about themselves and to develop and fine point their intuition. That's right. That's right. When they get out of bed every morning, every elite athlete does exactly the same thing. The second their legs hit the ground, they stand up, they make an instantaneous calculation. How recovered am I? Yeah. Am I throttled right. to death? That's right. Or am I at 100%? 
And because that determines how their workout will go for that day. That's, That's your right. universe. That's right. And so these metrics like HRV and recovery scores we get from sleep monitors and power on a ride and heart rate, our response to our workload, all those are just helping refine that intuition. But they're right. not the end goal. This is one of my problems with modern metrics. People think power is a goal. Power is not a goal. Yeah. Power is not an end. It's a tool. It's a screwdriver. That's right. It's something you use to figure out what's going on. And... Sorry. I mean, it's a measurement, right? It's a measurement. It's, yeah. It measures stuff. But I don't, like, my rider can win the race. And if they don't set any power PRs or their FTP is low as fuck, I don't care. That's right. The That's point right. of being a bike racer is to win races. That's right. And there are lots of ways to win races without having a high FTP. And to go all anti-Coggin for a moment, love you, Andy, but your his universe is dominated by the aerobic paradigm and FTP, which he says over and over again, like a broken record, is the underpinnings of all aerobic endurance sports and the greatest predictor of outcome. I think it completely depends on the bike race you're talking about. And I think the bias we have as in the world of cycling on the whole is either right now, it's either the Tour de France or maybe Paris-Roubaix. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And or possibly Dirty Kanza. Yeah. But there are so many other bike races yeah. that happen and are won in different ways. That's right. And are not contingent only on watts per kilogram, which is a 50,000 foot view metric of rider performance, but on watts produced per gram of drag, aerodynamic drag, for example, yeah. or timing of a sprint or ability to accelerate through a corner yeah. or ride a bike smoothly over cobblestones yeah. or eat, drink, and keep yourself warm at the right moment, etc. Yeah. There's a thousand other things that go into winning bike races besides fucking functional threshold power. But in particular right now, because of COVID and trainer world and Zwifty land and all that stuff, literally people are riding along looking at their watts per kilo and that's their focus. So what are they, I've unfortunately coached several athletes who have kind of fallen down this rabbit hole recently. Yeah, yeah. Which is, I need to eat less and go harder. Yeah, yeah. Right? You know, I, Because that's the 50,000 foot view of watts per kilo, how do you tackle that? Sure. You eat less and go and train harder. Sure, sure. <laughs> and guess what that does? Yeah. That destroys your athlete. You know, it's interesting. As you, as you talk about bike racing, I am I'm really kind of getting slapped in the face by the idea that I've never really actually cared about bike racing. Mm, I love that statement. Right? Right. And it, it seems almost kind of weird. Like, what? Really? Is that mm. what the goal is? We're trying to win a bike race? That's right. weird. <laughs> because I think that what I've always been intrigued by is just the the, the sense of deep satisfaction. Yes. Right? And you know this feeling when you finish a really hard day of even training. If you, even if you didn't right? yeah, if you didn't win, because it was training in this example. That's right. Right. That's right. And right. not to say that you know, uh, all we want to be are good trainers. No. But you get that deep satisfaction in any process that you try to master, you know, whether it is at a bike race or whether it is in your mm -hmm. daily environment and your daily performance, yeah. right? Whether it's in the discipline that you bring to, you know, how you take care of yourself and how you take care of others. And I think it's it's in in this realm where I realize as a coach that I really suck when I'm not in person. Ah. Uh. Right, and that's what maybe COVID mm. has taught me more than anything. That mm. it only works for me in terms of that 
that that that sense of satisfaction when you're actually there with the person. Right. 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 Um, Having that human element that that's right. That one on one connection super hard to navigate during this period yeah. of time. I mean, you can get away with some of it through FaceTime or whatever, but yeah, even that's it's yeah. just not as it's not as satisfying or it's not as satiating. And you know, to to go back to contradiction again, there is this kind of sense of hunger and satiation Mm -hmm. and that this is a kind of beautiful strange hunt Mm -hmm. we are all on yes yeah i think you you nailed it there um that's funny you said that you don't actually care that much about bike racing i mean i i would also count myself in that category like i'm the world's biggest bike dork but that means i love cycling and i love cycling as a process that's treating it as a process and a practice that's right right that's right because how you do one thing is how you do everything. That's right. That's so right. So when I do things consciously and I try to be attentive and be present in any given moment, it's not something I'm only doing when I'm doing a five minute interval and I'm staring at my power meter. That's right. It's something I'm doing when I'm chopping onions. That's it's right. Something I'm doing when I'm. Yeah. Whatever. Trying to when I'm meditating, when I'm eating my food. Yeah. I'm not just jamming fuel down my throat hole so that I can go do something more entertaining or watching Game of Thrones while I'm eating dinner. Like yeah. this is an experience that I'm taking nutrients into my body and yeah. making myself, I'm refueling my body, not just in terms of gasoline, but in terms of energy. That's like right. Real life force. That's right. So I think. Um, and we all know that winning seldom reflects that level of discipline or effort or fitness. Right. It's so, it's such a cacophony of weird circumstances and bizarre stuff sometimes that re- reads leads to people winning a bike race like that's right how many examples of that do we see which that's is right. why that's the speech you have to give someone when they're like man i'm not going very good right now i got no power it's like <laughs> yeah well if the race <laughs> outcome was predetermined we wouldn't pin on numbers would we we that's just right. hand out medals that's so, right danny pate uh, <laughs> have probably had is one of the best guys that i've ever seen get interviewed uh at press conferences because he just hates being interviewed and he hates <laughs> the stupid questions that journalists would ask him when he was riding on the pro tour and right he won the stage of the tour of missouri um and was at the press conference after the win and a journalist asked danny you know when you woke up in this morning did you did you feel like you had good legs what, what did you think your chances of of winning this morning and he looks at this guy and he's like well I woke up this morning and I thought to myself, there are 120 other guys in this race, so my chances are one in 120. Just <laughs> <laughs> such a great answer, <laughs> right? And the journalist went, "That yeah. is true." <laughs> uh, not really what I was looking for. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> Give me something juicy. That's I need right. a nugget here. But mm. but them are the facts. Yep, them's the facts. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I am guilty of not necessarily following a lot of bike races or watching them really in depth. Me either I don't um, follow unless anything I have anymore. an athlete that I'm coaching in that race. Yeah, that's then I'm very interested in it because again because I have an investment in how that athlete's doing. Not I mean of course I want my athlete to do well in terms of placing, but I'm more interested in the post race report. That's right. Give me the dirt. Like yeah, what how'd happened? you feel? What happened? How'd you feel? How satisfied with you were you with the effort? Were you checked in? Were you did you feel connected with your body? Did you feel like you were making good power? That's right. Did you execute well? Were you hampered by team tactics? I mean, there's so many right. variables at the world total level. Like, yeah. how many race reports do you get from your guys? Who yeah. Are like, yeah, I, I was breathing through my nose all day and had no chain, but you know, the director pulled me out of the break, or 
I was pinned, you know, I had to go to the car 15 times or whatever, you know, yeah. my teammate made two teammates made the break of 15 and that was it race over and yeah. whatever. So Colby, I'm going to run uh, beginning around June 1st, uh, maybe two month long training camp out of Boulder, just an ongoing training camp for, uh, you know, few athletes who just don't have any events. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to figure it out. And I think it'll just be like a two week on one week off cycle, uh -huh. three or four structured supported rides each week and awesome. just see what kind of tempo we can create and nice. what kind of environment we can create with a handful of athletes. If you want to help out or join or have, you know, a, an athlete, you know, of participate, I think it could be really cool because we still do need to create an environment and mm -hmm. it, we'd be hard pressed to continue doing this by ourselves. Agreed. And so with safety and health in mind, yep. what can we do, right? So the riders will be riding with duct tape over their nose and mouth. <laughs> <laughs> little bubbles, little bubbles, you know? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, um, if you have info on this camp, uh, we'll put it in the show notes. That's right. Um, yeah, and we can so get people we'll, interested. We'll, we'll see what get happens. Get some buzz generated. That sounds like a great idea. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, look, all coaches are in the same position right now. I, I have to just have a moment of gratitude because when this shit hit the fan, you know, people are kind of panicking and everyone's going every which way. Like what's going to happen to my business. Yeah. And for me, I feel really grateful because I, as it turns out, when a global pandemic hits, people need coaching. Like they really need coaching Yeah. because <laughs> now their whole season's been flushed. Yeah. Goals have been moved. I have one guy who's shooting for a Paralympics in 2020 and now it's 2021. Yeah. That's, you know, these are serious life cycles of people like significant life events that have been moved back i mean that's right look at what happened with nathan haas and and alex house too like their seasons are completely nuked and now the fall is going to be crazy that's right that's it's right. going to be actually really crazy because all these all the major world tour events are going to be stacked on top of each other which means world tour teams can no longer be as selective about sending their top riders to the best the a races that's right but they also can't send their top resources that's right. If they have only one chef, which the majority of World Tour teams do, where does that chef go? Does it go that's to the right. Tour or the Vuelta or the Classics? And that's, that's right. going to be a mess, right? So it's, it's going to stress the teams. It's going to stress the riders. Riders are going to have to make hard choices. Anyway, it's it's actually going to be kind of an interesting fall to watch some bike racing and see what happens because we're going to see some unpredictable results. Yeah. Based on We're going to have people who are fitter than hell because they did a bunch of 12-hour rides on Strava. <laughs> that's right. And Zwift. And then we're going to have people who suck that's <laughs> because right. they've been depressed or locked in a cage for three months or that's whatever. right it's gonna, be, it's gonna all be all over the place over the place it's gonna be kind of cool actually um not to trivialize anyone's struggle with this but yeah maybe we'll watch them by yeah you gotta so, always look for the silver linings right 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 the medicine in the experience so this is a cool idea though to for you to have a camp i think people are really ready to start riding together i think a lot of my athletes are pretty yeah. sick of training by themselves i am such a solo warrior i'm like totally content to go listen to some pods or zone out on my rhythm music and smash myself up a climb and that's good for me but i know i'm a i'm a strange bird you've so, always been good at that <laughs> um i'm backwards in that respect you know like most athletes inherently are better at racing other people with other people next to them yeah i was the opposite i was a better time trialist as a junior i had to learn how to race in a peloton yeah. and push myself deeper when there was someone next to me because i was like I had to, I was constantly like, God, that guy doesn't seem like he's going that hard. I don't know. What am I doing wrong? And then I'd blow up, freak out. <laughs> it took me two years to figure that out. I remember shunning <laughs> races and just didn't quite get it. But time trial, I could turn myself inside out. Colby. It's, Backwards. It's all a beautiful dance, man. 
Right, it's isn't all it? A beautiful dance. It's all God trying to work itself you out. Know? Yeah, and you were just moving the upper body, <laughs> but then you learned to move the legs. <laughs> and now, hopefully, I'm putting them together. That's right. Did you it's know the psoas, which is the muscle that joins the upper body and the lower body, is also referred to as the muscle of the soul? Wow! I learned this recently. That's because really interesting. It is the deepest muscle in the body, yeah. and it has such a primal connection, and also such a critical connection to link the upper and lower halves. Yeah. Right? Isn't that cool? That makes sense. It's the biggest so source as. of imbalance in most athletes. Oh, if you don't know sitting, what your psoas is, check it out. Oh, it's all short. I gotta, I gotta right? stretch out here. Yes. Yes. Fuck. Just like a cat every morning. That's right. That's right. Uh. Dr. Lynn, tell us how people can find out more about you. Website, Facebook, social beasties. Best way to find out more about me is take me out to dinner. Yeah. <laughs> Best answer ever. Because I got to imagine that like everything online is bullshit because I either wrote it and was trying to represent the best part of myself mm. or somebody else wrote it who doesn't actually know who I am. Right. And much of this stuff is totally out of date anyways because you write it and who wants to update their resume or their biography or every CV single of, day or like yeah. upload a new Facebook picture. There um, are people who do want to do that. Apparently yeah, you have I better things I, to do though. I don't want to do that. Right. I don't so do that. I think the Best way to get to know me is to knock on my door and uh, give me some food, and I'll answer any questions that you right. might have. So we'll, we'll, we'll get put to Alan's address in the show notes. That's right, and we'll get to know each other. You know, we'll get to know each other. We'll have that 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 human interaction. Yes. Um, when things open up again, they can stop by Scratch Labs and say that's right. hi. That's any right. idea when the office is going to be? I, I, I don't have an idea. I, we had this uh, discussion about it. We're going to have further discussions about it. I think that there are going to be a number of different triggers, both biological triggers as well as social triggers, as well as individual work needs. You know, for example, our warehouse uh, guys are already there, but they're there in a very open environment with, yeah. you know, not a lot of other people there. Um, maybe our customer service people might need to get in because they work so closely with our warehouse team. So that might be the next trigger. Maybe there's an antibody test right. and we start letting people who have antibodies go back in, right? Um, maybe testing becomes more robust. Maybe mm. a vaccine occurs. Uh, maybe we adapt some people to working from home for as long as they feel comfortable or want to. Yeah. This is further complicated by the fact that some you know, of our employees have kids that require you know, uh, care, daily care, and there and isn't school, that care, right? right? So every single person is in a different situation, and we're going to try to respect every individual's needs as much as possible. We're really fortunate to be able to, to, to do so. Um, Sounds so, like you're right where most small businesses are, which is we don't know what the fuck's going on. We don't, and, <laughs> and we, have to, we have to take it kind of one person at a time and we have to take it mm. one day at a time mm. with known contingencies that we have to go back and retreat, you know? So this whole idea of, you know, uh, drop, drop and roll <laughs> is kind of at the forefront of everyone's mind. Right. You know? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> this is your like little, little earthquake drills. Yes. Oof. Okay. Yeah. Well, cool. Yeah. So, but you know, we're we're lucky that we're still uh, shipping and people are are working from home and I think we're all anxious to be back together because there's a lot more efficiency when we are uh, together. There is also a lot of cool freedom in you know being able to work from home. It's a double-edged sword for sure. Right. Um, I agree. Yeah. 
some things go really well and others not so much. Yeah, and yeah. we're all we're all we're all we're all battling that right now. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's confusing. The other day I was trying to do some work and my cat literally jumped on my desk and she was flicking my mouse with her tail <laughs> back and forth and the mouse was moving and like opening random emails and stuff and then she Whoa. kept touching her nose. I have one of those lamps on my desk that's like that you touch it to make it go to three different intensities or off. So she kept turning the lamp on and off, you know, with her nose. I was like, okay, we're just gonna, I'm just gonna hang out and watch this for a minute. I'm yeah. one of many, I'm sure, you know, there are people with toddlers who are like hurtling stuff at their head while they're trying to do business calls and yeah. things I can only imagine, but. Colby, how has your life been and what are your plans for the summer? Well, my life's been good on the whole, you know, like we talked about manifesting a pause button. I feel like I needed that. Um, yeah. I've been able to dig deep into some of my Czech studies, studying with Paul Czech at the Czech Academies yeah. based in San Diego and taking some holistic lifestyle coaching courses and some uh, programming courses with him, advanced programming design, programming design, which has been great. It's, you know, I've been coaching for 20 years, but um, sometimes you need that that educational stimulus to help you get a fresh look, look at things through a fresh lens. Yeah. And it's caused me to go through and rewrite a lot of my programs and think critically about the way I give some of my athletes load in particular in regards to strength and conditioning. Yeah. Um, that's where yeah. a lot of Paul's stuff is, is focused, but even in the programming I give them on the bike, it's been challenging to a degree. So that's been really rewarding for me. been working hard on the podcast and this has given me some time to, to do that and, um, get this up and running, which has been great. I'm starting to see clients in the fit lab again, um, little bit by bit screening them, you know, we're using masks if needed. I'm wiping everything down with the usual precautions using an air filter in combination with an essential oil diffuser. Yeah. So that's kind of my standard practice, but so far so good. We've all been healthy. My daughter was studying in France this spring in Provence. She had to come home of course, because she's at Wellesley and her, her program, like all study abroad programs got canned. So yeah. she's been about, we had, we actually had to upgrade and get, um, fiber optic because my wife's been taking so many classes online and then I was at home and then Chloe was online and the internet was just melting down. Whoa. So we had to, we we're like, I need some bandwidth here. Hit the button. Um, That's so awesome. that was a worthy investment. But as far as the summer goes, you know, at one point I was thinking like gravelly stuff, maybe steamboat or something more as if a part, more of a participation level for me, just to go out and enjoy it and go hard and see what happens. But that's all gone now. So, I was contemplating the idea of doing an Everesting just on my own terms for fun. Whoa. Um, that trending. would be pretty cool. It is trending right now. Yeah. It feels like something I just want to tick the box on. I'm sure there are people right now doing no, that in Boulder. This is Wednesday. Literally, Kevin Nickel is doing one on Magnolia today. It's a thing. I think everyone will have done it sooner or later, but I've never ridden my bike 15 hours, so I figure, oh, I got to do it. That's I think it's 17 laps up Superflag, which oh is like, my gosh. can you imagine? So that's starting you know, at five in the morning and taking lights on both ends of the day for sure and Whoa. being ninja about food and water and stuff so now i'm 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 reasonably fit right now but in a very generalist way i've been lifting weights doing kettlebells some riding some riding hard not a lot of volume so i'm a good couple of months away before i could handle something like that without it absolutely buckling me yeah but i think that might be a summer goal for me just for fun to like build up to that so nice maybe if i participate in some of your camps and help out i can gain some fitness yes please do get I my teeth kicked in a little bit have you there that'd be awesome thank you yes sweet okay thank you so much dr alan Lim, for joining us on cycling alignment thank you for having me thanks for um for the wonderful conversation we had a lot of deep topics here man we did like we went 
We went deep. We went sideways. We went yeah. in the weeds. Hopefully, yeah. people find that enlightening or at least entertaining. <laughs> That's right. And we That's kept right. the f bombs down to around a dozen or so. That's right. You know. That's right. So it, it, it's 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 a word that brings people together, <laughs> right? Yes. As you said, you can't remember the last time you told someone to f off, but. That's right. We use it to That's right. to unite people in, yeah. in a common way. In yeah. a, in an, it's, I think the word, for what it's worth, I think it's probably the definition is evolved. That's right. That's you right. know, I mean, 30 years ago, oh. you get a mouthful of soap for that. No. It doesn't work that way. Doubt. But this has been fracking awesome. <laughs> Thanks for the flipping interview, dude. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Cycling in Alignment podcast. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you have some feedback about the show, you can email me at cyclinginalignment at fastlabs.com. We will also put the link to this email in the show notes and some links to some socials in case you want to hit us up there. We appreciate your positive feedback if you like the show. If you didn't like it, well, that's okay. And let me know about that too. Disclaimer. Listen up, monkeys. The ramblings on this podcast represent me and me alone. They're not indicative of the thoughts or opinions of Fast Labs or Chris Case or Trevor Connor or anyone else. Also, none of this advice is intended to prescribe or diagnose anything. I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on the internet. So just want to be clear on those points. Thanks for listening.